Malachi 2, starting in verse 17, hear the word of the Lord. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then it will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. Your word that both cuts us and heals us. Lord, we need your word to speak into our minds, speak to our hearts, speak to our community. And so uh, we open our hearts now to you and we pray that you'd send your Holy Spirit, that your spirit would enlighten our minds to understand the truths that are written here for us in Malachi. And so we ask that you would give us ears to hear the words you have to say to us. In the name of Jesus, our Lord, amen. So the passage we're studying together uh, this morning addresses one of the most fundamental convictions about Christ's church, about our church together. And this is, this is what the conviction is. That pe- people often think that there are two kind, basically two kinds of people in the world. Religious people and irreligious people. And so there are you know, the religious people, the people who who uh, read the Bible, they go to church, they organize their life around the Bible, and they're very concerned about doing what's right, obeying what's written in the Bible. They're very moral people. These are religious people. And then there's other people who don't believe in the Bible and say, you know, I, I, I don't believe what the Bible teaches. I don't want God telling me what to do. I don't want the church telling me what to do. I want to follow my own heart. I want to follow my own passions, my own dreams. And they would say those are irreligious people, and that basically these are two different ways of living in the world. And so we think that the Bible says, well, the religious people are the righteous and the irreligious people are the wicked, right? God loves, the, you know, he delights in the religious people who believe the Bible and do what the Bible says, and he despises the people that ignore the Bible and don't do what the Bible says. Now, the problem with this is that as soon as you begin to carefully read the Bible, you will quickly find that the most wicked people in the Bible are the most religious people. The people that Jesus says, you better watch out about going to hell. You see, I don't even know how you're going to escape hell, 
are the scribes and the Pharisees. They were Bible scholars. Their whole life was devoted to obeying the Bible. And actually, the people who schemed to murder Jesus were the priests. You know? they're, they're the religious leaders, the most religious people, the most heinous crime in the history of the world that the most innocent man, God himself, came as a blessing was murdered by religious people. It completely disrupts that whole idea that it's religious people and irreligious people are the two ways to live, which tells us that there are not actually two ways to live, but there are three. Religion and irreligion are both ways of rejecting God. That might be a new thought for you. Religion and irreligion are both forms of unbelief. And what Jesus is offering us is what Tim Keller calls a third way to live, living according to the gospel. And the gospel has the power to heal both our irreligion and our religion. The gospel has to do both those things. It can't just cure our irreligion. It has to cure our religion as well. And so uh, these are our three points that I want to make this morning. Is that unbelief, first of all, can be religious. Rejecting God can be religious. Might be a new thought for you. Second, unbelief can be irreligious. And the third thing is that unbelief can only be healed by the gospel. So three points this morning as we look at Malachi. The first is this. Unbelief can be religious. And at the beginning of this passage, you'll notice that the Lord says a couple things to the, his people, to Israel, that weary him. And the first thing that he says that wearies him, verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. This is interesting. The thing that Malachi says wearies the Lord is that there are people who others say are doing things that are good, that are pleasing to the Lord, that the Lord delights in. These must be religious activities. These are people who are doing religious activities. They say, well, that's what God likes. God likes those religious activities. And yet, Malachi says, they're actually evil. The things they are doing, are God thinks they're evil, and the people say that they're doing religious things for God, and yet God says that they're evil. And which tells us, this is kind of chilling, it is possible to be church-going, Bible-reading, you know, serving people, sharing your faith. Your whole life could be religious, and yet the whole thing could be driven by fundamental unbelief, a rejection of God. The whole thing could be motivated by that, by a rejection of God. And you might say, well, how could that be? How could someone spend their whole life reading the Bible, going to church, talking about Jesus all the time, and yet that could actually be motivated by unbelief? Well, here's how. If you say, I do good works, and so God owes me his favor. If that is how you relate to God, and say, you know, I do good things for God, and, I do, and now he owes me his favor, think about what your life is like. First of all, that means that when you do good works, who are they for? When you do loving acts, when you serve people, who, who are you doing it for? Well, it's so you can get favor from God. Right? You are buying favor. You're saying that God, it's actually for yourself. All the good works that you're doing, though they have a veneer of being moral and being good, they're actually completely self-serving. And your view of God is not that God is generous, open-handed, he's a giver, he loves to give things freely to people. No, it's that he is a taskmaster and that he has given you a task to do, and if you, only if you do everything that has been tasked to you, then God will release his grip on his blessings and his love and maybe give you some if you've earned it and merited it. 
And then, of course, so, you know, it's a view of, uh, view, you know, it's very selfish, has a strange view of God. And then the third thing is that you, then you're going to constantly be comparing yourself to other people. You say, well, I've done this many good works. How many has that person dead, and that the whole religion because it becomes a competition of who's been doing more, uh, more good works. And, um, and so it's very possible to have your whole life be Christian, and yet you're proud, arrogant, have a very high view of yourself. You view God as selfish and harsh and distant, which, by the way, is blasphemy. I mean, if you think that God is harsh and distant, do you think God wants to be viewed that way? Do you think he likes it when people view him as, as you know, tight-fisted and he doesn't want to give blessings out and he doesn't open up his hand, he's not kind and generous like a good father? No, it's blasphemous to view God that way. And, um, and you look down on other people and judgmental and slow to give. And that's why Malachi is saying it's possible to have a completely religious life and yet it's actually evil. <laughs> It is evil. Religious good works are not driven by love, and so they are not really filled with goodness. And so, you know, I, uh, I heard one, um, I had a, a, a professor in seminary who uh, said, no one's hurt, are they? No? Okay. Oh, poor guy. All right. Sorry. Okay. I didn't, I didn't know if someone got hurt. Okay. Um, I had a professor in seminary who, I maybe have shared this story with you, he was talking about how he went to a, a dinner party that a woman was putting on once, and um, it was a very elaborate dinner party, you know, elaborate table setting. Everyone had a place where they were going to sit, and, you know, there was napkins, and it was very well thought out. And, and, you know, but it was kind of a stiff experience. You know, you weren't sure if you were doing any, everything right. Are you going to act out of place? And it was actually kind of uncomfortable being at this dinner party. And then all of a sudden, one of the people that at the dinner party knocked over a glass of wine and spilled the wine all over this lady's nice white um, tablecloth. And so the woman makes everyone get up and stand off to the side of the table while she completely replaced the whole setting and made it beautiful again. And they had to stand there for 20 minutes, of course, shaming the person who'd filled the glass of wine instead of just being like, oh, you know, this is an old tablecloth, who cares? You know, no big deal, let's, you know, it wasn't, and all of a sudden it turns out this whole act of hospitality that she probably felt very good about, and I'm being so generous to all these people, was actually not for them. It's not to connect with people. It wasn't to love people. It was to show off. It was for her. It was for her to show off how great she was. It was a completely, deeply selfish act. And that's what Malachi is saying, is it is possible to have a whole life that's moral and religious and good, but at heart is actually evil. It's really chilling. And what's most frightening about religious unbelief, re religious rejection of God is that the whole time we actually think that we're pleasing God. We think that God loves it the whole time. And we tell everyone that God loves it. And it, you know, what does Malachi say? It wearies him. <laughs> it wearies God. He's like, oh my goodness, this is not pleasing to me, okay? And so now increasingly our culture has become alert to this kind of evil, religious evil. Our culture very much thinks that way. And that's why many people say, I don't want anything to do with the church. I don't want anything to do with the Bible, Christian people. Um, it's all this kind of candy-coated veneer of morality covering a really hard and harsh and selfish heart. And they say, I don't want anything to do with that. And so, you, uh, you know, that might be you, and you hear Malachi, and you say, well, Malachi, that's right, give it to those religious people, you know, stick it to them, the do-gooders. And yet, Malachi's words are not only for the religious, though. 
Because the second thing we see is that not only the unbelief, denying God can have look in a religious way, but unbelief, of course, can also be irreligious. And you see, let's read verse 17 again. Notice there's a second thing that wearies the Lord. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Now, it's a very interesting question. It really speaks to the heart of many people's doubts. Where is the God of justice? You know, look at all the injustice in the world. Look at all the misery, the suffering, maybe injustice that you've experienced in your own life. You've been mistreated by people. Maybe there's just sadness. And it seems like there's hardly any happiness in the world. The main thing that happens in the world, you know, is, is, is that people are, are mistreating one another. There's violence on all kinds of levels. And we can say, how could we say that a world like this is run by a good God? Where is the God of justice? And the religious person on the one hand, you know, covers up their heart with morality, doing good things. And so we may hear this second question, where is the God of justice? Um, And, you know, it may seem very honest to us. You know, um, where someone says, you know, I'd never worship a God who would make a world this unjust. You know, there's something that seems a certain honesty about the brokenness of the world and about brokenness about ourselves. And we think that a question like this, you know, where is the God of justice, is this statement of authenticity, reality about the world. And so for many, you know, modern unbelievers, they would say, you know, to deal with the brokenness of the world, I'm not going to look at the God of the Bible. He's failed. He, he, he hasn't made this world. The only place that you can look is inside yourself. God won't help you. And what life is about is you need to make something of your life. You need to look into your heart, discover who you are. You need to find who you are. You need to create your own reality, a reality of positivity, of happiness, of joy, of fulfillment. And, um, and you must set yourself free from shame and from other people's expectations. Now, you hear that, and you say, okay, that's, that's very much how our culture is. You need to be, you're the, an individual who has to define who you are and become your own person. And you see that it's a massive project of self-salvation. You must sell, save yourself from a miserable world. And so on the one hand, the religious person tries to save themselves by doing all these things that the Bible tells them to do, all these rules and expectations, and it's all up to them And, of course, what that leads to is either despair because you can't do all the good things or it leads to arrogance because you think you do do all those good things. You look down on people who don't. But also, the irreligious person is also trying to save themselves by finding themselves. There's many people in, in our generation, young people, who feel that is a tremendous burden, that you have to find out who you are. You have, to dis- you have to make this brilliant life that is creative and passionate and ambitious and do all these things. You must create a meaningful life for yourself. And, of course, that can lead to despair or that can lead to arrogance. Self-salvation always leads to those two things. And so they are both ways, religion and irreligion, are both ways of not trusting God. And they're both ways of trying to keep control of my own life. Now, you know, there's something also very modern about this question, 
where is the God of justice? You know, that's another quality of kind of modern spirituality, modern religion, right? Is people say, you know, spirituality is about asking questions. It's not about answers. You know, why do you want to get the answer? It's about the journey. It's about asking. It's about the mystery of it and encountering the mystery and embracing the questions. And, you know, on the one hand, there's a certain sense where there's, there's some humility to that, right? You know, there's a lot of things that we can't comprehend about who God is and about why the world's here and what, what God is doing in the world. But what we are faced with this morning in Malachi is what happens when God answers the question. When you say, where is the God of justice? One of the great mercies of this text is God says, I, even, that, even though that question wearies me, I will answer it. Right? You see there in the beginning of chapter 3, it starts with the word behold. Behold the answer. And this passage tells us that the answer to the question, where is the God of justice, is Jesus. The answer to that question is not a philosophy. It's, uh, you know, it's not activism. It's, uh, it's not a kind of prayer. It's not a set of morals. It's not a spirituality. That is not God's answer to where the God of justice is. It is a person. And if you want to know the God of justice, you must look at that person. And so that leads to the third point that we're going to look at this morning. So that, first, unbelief can be either religious or irreligious. And, you know, those two forms of unbelief actually in many ways represent the divides in our country right now. You know, our country is very divided between conservative and liberal. You know, between those who think that we, as a nation, we should obey the Bible more and we long for the traditional standards that define who we are. And we want to return to the traditional morals that are laid down for us in the Bible as a conservative. And the liberals say, no, what we long for is a day where people can be themselves and they can be free. And, you know, they're not, they're not put in a straitjacket by anyone else's beliefs and they can become who they are. And actually, for many people, they say, as they look at these are the only two options before us, they say they're long. They ache for a third way, a third option. There's aspects of both of these that are true, but there's also aspects of both these movements, both these places, ways of living that are unsatisfying. And so, um, it may be a relief to you to know that the gospel is not religion or irreligion. And this leads to our third point, that unbelief can only be healed by the gospel, both religious and irreligious unbelief rejection of God, keeping control of my own life, self-salvation, all of that can only be healed by the gospel. And this passage I just read, of course, is one of the great prophecies of the Old Testament coming at the very end of the Old Testament that is promised the coming of the Christ, the Messiah. And it was God's answer to the question, where is the God of justice? And God gives this answer, chapter 3, verse 1. This is what it says. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, this is a really striking verse, which Jesus, of course, quoted and said, this is talking about John the Baptist. He's the one who's going to come and prepare the way. But who was John the Baptist supposed to prepare the way for, according to Malachi 3? He's preparing the way for the Lord who is going to come to his temple. And it turns out that the messenger of the covenant, this is the Messiah who is going to come, is the Lord himself. God himself is going to come. 
And this is the message of the gospel that the Lord has become a man in Christ. That's what Christmas is all about, is that the God who made this world became a baby in a poor family. He entered into the world of misery. He entered into the world of justice and walked in it and spoke in it and and experienced the injustice himself. And two things that the gospel shows us in this passage is the first that to the irreligious person, the gospel shows us a God of justice. To the irreligious person, the gospel shows us the God of justice. And you can see that this text talks about justice. You know, when the Lord comes, it's with justice, right? Verse, verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And then skipping down to verse 5, look at what it says. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerer, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Now, in some ways, many you know, secular people do not like uh, thinking about a God of justice. You know, maybe that's you. You say, you know, the thought that God is a judge, that God gets angry at things in the world, you know, it's just unbearable. If, if there is a God out there, he is pure love and kindness and acceptance and tolerance and embrace. And, you know, I can't, uh, you know, imagine these are human things to be angry. And that's not like, that would, it's not, it's unbecoming of God to ever get angry. And, uh, but, you know, what's interesting is that many of the same people who would say, I, I can only imagine a God of embrace and kindness and gentleness and, and, and tolerance, are the same people who would say, that many of the acts of injustice that are in our society and the world, we absolutely should be angry about. Actually, some of the things that are listed here in this passage, right? The sojourner, caring for the sojourner. Many people in our culture would say, you know, it, it is an act of justice that those who are foreigners, who are going to come among us, we have to treat with love and care and, and support. And that, of course, that was a big thing in, in, uh, in uh, the laws in Israel was that there are going to be immigrants among you, and how are you going to treat them? Are you going to treat them with love? Are you going to treat them, uh, you know, with racism? And, if, and uh, you know, racism is something that people say we should be, of course we should be angry about. Or the widow, the vulnerable woman who could be oppressed by a society, the Lord is saying, I get angry when the, when the vulnerable woman is not cared for or not defended or not protected. And, and so if we are supposed to get angry about these things, don't we expect that God would get angry? Would you expect anything less than him? Isn't that, what, isn't that what love does? Love gets angry at injustice. And so here we have a riddle. Because on the one hand, we don't want God to be a judge. We want him to be kind <laughs> and embracing. On the other hand, we do want God to be a judge and come end all the injustice in the world. It's a dilemma. And so how is this dilemma resolved? Well, the Bible does tell us that the God of the Bible will come and expose all of the injustice that happens in this world. He will name it. He will condemn it. Whether it is the injustice of a drug lord who's oppressing people or is it just the injustice of a father speaking a cruel word, word to his child. All of these injustices, God will name. And you know, for many of you who've experienced abuse or mistreatment in your life, 
you may know or you may not know yet that one of the most important things for the healing of that abuse is that it is named, it is exposed, it is brought to light, and it is condemned, that you know that it is named as being wrong. God will do that. Every tear he bottles up of the weak, and he will stand with them and say that he is their God, and he will condemn every wrong that was done. It is an essential part of who God is. It is an essential part of his love. But we also know, the Bible tells us, that the cruelty that God will judge and that he will condemn, that injustice, lives inside of all of us. You know, cruelty is not, you know, we think of, uh, of uh, injustice as something that maybe ISIS does on the other side of the world. But the Bible tells us that the seeds of that cruelty live inside of all of us. And until you realize that, until you realize that the thing that God must judge lives inside of you, you will never understand the God of justice. If God judged all of the cruel people, there would be no one left. And so Jesus has entered in to the world of injustice, and he's taken God's justice in our place on the cross. Jesus has given an open offer to all people everywhere, an offer of pardon. Your participation in the injustice in the world, the cruelty, the, the suffering and the misery of the world, the, the part that you have played in that, he is giving you an open offer of forgiveness, of amnesty, to be welcomed into his kingdom. And so God is right now withholding his judgment. And he's saying to all people, he's patiently waiting for people to admit the crimes that are in their own hearts and to come and be reconciled to him. And so this is an open offer. It's a time of waiting. He's been waiting for 2,000 years now. And so the answer to the question, where is the God of justice, is the brilliant answer of the gospel. If you want to see the God of justice, you look in the face of Jesus. You look at him defending the weak. You look at him humiliating the self-righteous. You look at him dying on the cross for criminals, for the worst sinners in the world taking our punish. You look at him embracing the outcast. You look at him forgiving every shameful thing you've ever done. Jesus is the answer to the riddle. We must know that we are living in a world of riddles. And Jesus is the answer to the riddle. And so to the irreligious person, the gospel shows us the God of justice in Christ. But the second thing the gospel shows us is to the religious person, the gospel shows us the God of grace. The religious person is often thinking about God's justice. You know, good people getting what they deserve, bad people getting what they deserve. I want God's justice. You know, always talking about the final judgments coming, and you're going to have to stand, and won't that be great when the good people are saved and the bad people are are sent to hell? And uh, that is why the religious people were so enraged when they saw the prostitutes and tax collectors and the uneducated and the foreigners. They were all just flocking to Jesus. And Jesus was welcoming them. He was eating with them. He was embracing them. And they were completely baffled by it. And the reason the religious person is so judgmental and cold and harsh is because they do not understand grace. The religious person has not understood the grace that is at the heart of the gospel. And grace in this passage looks like God washing the dirty and God delighting in them. God washing us and delighting in us. 
That's the grace of the gospel. You see that there, verse 3. He washes, he purifies. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Grace means that we come to God dirty. And of course, this was the leaders, the, the, the Levites, the priests, and, but this purifying, we'll see in the next verse, is intended for the whole people. That You can only understand grace if you have come to God dirty, ashamed. And only then can you experience grace and know what it is to be washed. And when you're washed, it's not only that he cleans us, but he delights in us. Look at those words. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in in former years. In the gospel, in Jesus, when we are washed, you could be an ingredient in God's joy and happiness a source of delight to him. He will look on you and be pleased. That's what God gives to sinners who come to him in Jesus. And what the religious person needs to know is that even if you've been in church for decades, God's approval, God's delight in you is not because of the good things you've done. It's not because of the task list that God, the taskmaster, has given to you. That is not why he delights in you. He, Christ is sufficient for you to be a delight to the Lord, the one who washes. And in Christ, we are a delight to the Lord. And when that's happened, when you've known grace, there's no place for arrogance. How, how could you possibly look down on it? I came to God dirty. How could I look down on anyone who walks through these doors or think that I'm better than them? How could there be any comparing? I have nothing to offer. I came empty-handed to the Lord, and he's embraced and delighted me. I'm deeply humbled and deeply secure and loved in Jesus. And so what the gospel tells us are these two things, that you and I, we are far worse, far more sinful, far more selfish, far more lustful and judgmental than anyone ever dreamed. And to say that we could save ourselves is absurd. We cannot do that. We must be washed and embraced by Jesus. And so the gospel also tells us that in Christ, we are far more loved than we could have ever dreamed. It is not something I work for to earn God's approval. It is a gift that we receive by faith. This is the third way. This is the way that's not religion or your religion. It's not self-salvation. And so the call for all of us this morning, whether you have tendency towards religion or you have a tendency towards irreligion is to come in faith to Jesus and have both of them healed and to, to know what it is to have a life that is defined by grace. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. That we come to you far worse far more sinful, broken far more of your commands than we even know. And yet you've provided a way, you've given this offer of embrace that we might simply come to you in faith. Give us the faith to receive and rest upon the love you offer us in Jesus. May it define us and define our life together as a church. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.